Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. Uh, My name is Eric Prexler. I am the special temporary primary host for today's episode, and I am joined by Greg Knuckles. Uh, People who have listened to previous episodes will recognize him. He's been uh, a co-host before, and for today's show, he's going to be, for now, the the permanent guest co-host for the time being. So, Greg, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, As always, if you like the show, be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get it. If you want more research, who doesn't want more research, Greg? Everybody wants more research. Uh, You can find it in your email inbox. However, you have to sign up for the newsletter. So go to strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter. We send out all sorts of information, including regular research updates. Uh, If you are looking for a one-on-one virtual coach, you can check that out at strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. Uh, If you want to get affordable supplements, even cheaper than list price, head over to BulkSupplements.com. You can use our discount code SBSPOD. That gets you a 5% discount off of your entire order. And in addition, if you'd like to support the show, there's a couple ways you could do that. You could go to the, uh, the Mass Research Review and subscribe. That's a monthly research review uh, where we review all the newest research in exercise and nutrition science. Uh, you could also check out Macrofactor. That's the diet app that we co-developed with a very talented team of developers. It does offer a free trial, so you can take it for a spin and see if you like it before you make any kind of financial commitment. Um, we're going to dive right in with today's episode. Uh, people noticed that our last episode ran a little bit longer <laughs> than our intended one-hour uh, goal. I am firmly committed in this episode to keeping my segment well under 90 minutes, um, but I am proud that I believe I have the new record on the show. Uh, and the record that I set last week was I went to about 500% of the intended duration of my segment. I, I know that no one's going to believe this. I genuinely thought I was going to do that in about 20 or 25 minutes. I, I have literally no idea how that's the case. It's one of those weird... I, I just looked at the outline. I was like, well, this is going at least an hour. I looked back at it. And it's weird. It was almost like I didn't think about it at all. I was just like, oh, I'm sure I can put this together, be really concise. And then I looked back at it and I was like, just the introduction was like 17 minutes. Yeah. So, um, (laughs) yeah, I I really believed deep down in my heart that was a 20, 25 minute segment. I thought there was a possibility that it could stretch to 30. It ended up being approximately 100 minutes. So that is the... um, the record for being just absolutely delusional on this show and having no understanding of how time works. But uh, this week, I'm certain that we're going to do better. Uh, also, one life update. we uh, In a previous fireside chat, we talked a little bit about facial hair. You encouraged me to grow a beard. Uh, several listeners did the same. And I am committed to supporting the audience and doing literally exactly what they tell me to so i am working on a beard if you're if you're watching on youtube um personally i i don't think it's going well but i you said that if i just i, dig I think in, it looks good well, i appreciate I think it looks that good. Y- you assured me that if i trust the process and uh just stick with it eventually things will get better so i i have trust in that i have faith in that 
And I'm going to keep pushing forward with an open mind. But at some point, I'm going to have to figure out how to make it look good. Uh, so, so now it's just kind of laying the foundation, letting it fill in, and we'll see what happens. I mean, that's, that's the key to growing a long beard. You don't have to do anything to make it look good. It's, it's just a matter of time. Okay. Well, I, I have seen, you know, the beard culture has taken on a life of its own, and people have all of the, the oils and the tinctures and the paraphernalia associated with grooming it. So I, I guess that you're, you're squarely outside of that that particular niche of beard culture yeah I, I shampoo it and that's that's literally it oh my god i yeah so last night uh let, let me ask you a question greg this is a genuine question all right do you know the difference between shampoo and conditioner yeah i see i got in a really big discussion with my girlfriend last night i had no idea I thought they were the same thing and it was just like a marketing gimmick. Uh, and to my credit, you know, I have long used something that claims to be a soap, a shampoo and a conditioner all at once. The the classic three in one. Yeah. yeah so I assume that any distinction was mostly academic rather than practical. Yeah. <laughs> they, they were basically the same thing. Uh, my girlfriend was absolutely stunned. She She thought I was doing a bit. She, she accused me of lying. And my my claim was that no more than about 15% of men will know the difference between shampoo and conditioner. Uh, that's that's probably not entirely wrong. I mean, there there's, this is my opinion, unless you're growing your hair reasonably long, I don't think there's any reason to know the difference. Yeah. Because... Uh, I don't know. This this could just be my perspective, but I think if your hair is less than about, eh, maybe like two inches long, like each each individual hair being about two inches long, like it's not even going to be obvious if your hair is like dry or not, like if it needs to be conditioned. It's like if you're keeping your hair short, I I just don't think it matters. But yeah. but I hear that if you grow your hair long and don't condition it, it gets like dry and frizzy and eh, what like. That that's just not a scenario I've ever had to worry about. Yeah. So I just go with the head and shoulders two in one, um, and it's been fine. Yeah. That that was uh, the the argument. Uh, it was a really heated argument. It eventually got to that point where the reason I gave that fifteen percent number uh, was really just a matter of, you know, how frequently do people actually try to grow their hair out to a, a considerable length? Like yeah. like for me, I'd never tried to grow my hair super long so again like it's it's never been something that has mm -hmm. uh been something for me to navigate uh but <laughs> she did ask she was like have you ever noticed that conditioner doesn't like sud up at all and i was like yeah i just thought conditioner was like shitty shampoo yeah <laughs> like so so i um i attempted for the span of about a week to have a more adult grooming routine where i'd like use some beard oil have separate shampoo and conditioner um and like i use uh like hand lotion i hated all of it mm -hmm. um it just like most things that are supposed to like moisturize whatever they're supposed to moisturize they just make you feel greasy yeah i hate that yeah like like you use conditioner in your hair and then next thing you know like that drips down over the rest of your body and now like your whole body feels like it's just been through an oil slick yeah. <laughs> and I think 
I mean, allegedly, some people find that nice and appealing. Same thing with, like, beard oil. It's, it's like, I feel like I just went to a fucking KFC buffet and, like, <laughs> ate a bunch of fried chicken and got chicken grease in my in my beard, which also isn't a great feeling experience. Like, the... I don't know how it looks or smells to other people, but the tactile sensation for me is deeply unpleasant. So yeah. I, I gave that whole song and dance about a week and then said, no, fuck it. Like that, I'm, I can't live this life. I'm glad to hear that that's a generalizable experience uh, because like, like I, I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but growing up, I had like a... I wouldn't call it severe, but I had a very moderate case of Tourette syndrome. Mm -hmm. Like my, my symptoms were notable. Like yeah. it was moderate enough that like before the school year, you got to go talk to the teacher and say, here's what's going to happen this year. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, so like for part of my Tourette's uh, symptoms, th there is considerable overlap with obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm hmm. And for me, texture and like the way my clothing felt and things like that, I was always very particular about like mm -hmm. if I tied my shoes 1% too tight or too loose, it would like I couldn't I couldn't get past it, yeah. you know. So for me, I, I thought that oily, greasy lotion feeling for me, it was a non-starter. Mm -hmm. um, but but I'm glad to hear that someone else feels the same way. Yeah, I, I it's uh it, who knows? Th this could uh, be suggestive of some sort of uh, of neurodivergence in myself as well. But especially, especially for me, it's my hands. Like yeah. hands and feet, but mostly hands. Like if, like how how they are just normally is fine. Or like you know, I can run them underwater, wash them with like normal soap. That's also fine. But any sort of like lotion, dude. I, I feel like I want to jump out of a window for the next, like, two hours. Yeah. It, it makes me feel like I'm going insane. Yeah. Same thing if they get too dusty. Like, dust and, uh, yeah, and, and, like, lotions. Like, they, nah, just, just not good. Yeah, I'm with you, man. But, uh, okay, I think in order to stay under two and a half hours, we should probably dive <laughs> into the topics here. So, Greg, uh, the floor is yours. All right. So I'm, I'm going to start with a question, Eric. Um, so if I told you that I am aiming to maximize muscle growth for eh, overall for a particular muscle group, doesn't really matter, but I'm aiming to maximize muscle growth over the next six months, and I'm presenting you with a binary choice. I am either going to do sets of about 10 reps for the muscle group I'm training or uh, about 25, 30 reps. Uh, which one would you advise me to do from from an evidence-based perspective uh i'm thinking of a very specific page in the old manual studying for the cscs exam and they had the beautiful little infographic you know where it was like this is the strength range and this is hypertrophy and this is muscular endurance mm -hmm. everybody went with that forever and then all the studies came up came out with the really high high rep low load training and everybody said, throw that away. So the, the, the two options you gave me, I would say both totally the same. No need to sweat over the details. So that is, I think, a very justifiable answer to give. And I also think that it's the wrong answer. And it's the answer I scripted for you. Correct. So uh, if people are listening, don't be like, ah, Eric's a dumbass and Greg and Eric are about to fight. Uh, no. We, we call this a, a learning opportunity. Apparently, there's research on this. 
if instead of just giving someone the right answer, if you ask someone a question and they give the wrong answer, and then you can leverage uh, the shame. Well, not leverage the shame, but in a <laughs> uh, in a faultful way, explain why they're wrong in a non-judgmental way. Apparently, uh, people remember better. Um, I, I got that from the YouTube channel Veritasium, so hopefully Derek wasn't bullshitting with that one. Uh, but anyway, so that's that's what we're going for here. Anyway, so the answer you gave, uh, you know, 10 reps, 30 reps per set seems to be the same. So for me as an individual trying to gain as much muscle as possible, no difference, doesn't matter. Uh, either one's fine. So that is an answer that, that comports well with the research where, you know, you take two groups of people, put one on one program, one on another program, run it for three months, four months, whatever, check gains over time. Uh, but that may not necessarily be true for individuals. And I think that that's a point that people intuitively understand really well in other contexts, but maybe don't understand quite as well intuitively when it comes to resistance training research. So here's an example. So let's say someone runs a study on basketball players in the off season where you take, uh, you know, you, you randomly allocate groups. You take one group of people and say, hey, this off season, all we're doing is resistance training and we're going to try to get you as strong and powerful as possible. The other group, you say, you know, hey, you got to like you can't get too exhausted by the end of the game. Like we, we still want to be firing on all cylinders in the fourth quarter when the other team is fading. We want to be able to leave our starters in the game longer, etc. So the entire offseason, we're just going to do conditioning work to try to get you in as good of shape as possible. If you run that study, and the results are that for the subsequent season, there's no difference between the two protocols. Like the effects on, you know, box scores are the same, like points, rebounds, assists, whatever. The, the effect on advanced stats is the same. You know, you could compare those group means and say, hey, these were two similarly efficacious interventions. However, I think people who know anything about basketball wouldn't therefore assume these two things work the same on average. Therefore, they'll work the same for all individuals. So, you know, if you have uh, a young beanpole coming into the league like Chet Holmgren, uh, you know, it's it's pretty obvious that he does need to spend time in the weight room and bulk up so he doesn't get bullied on the post. So, you know, for that individual, I think someone could could look at that and be like, well, you know, maybe these two interventions are similarly efficacious on average, but for this person, like, he definitely needs to be in the weight room. And for someone else who, you know, maybe is already quite big and strong, but maybe has conditioning issues, dominant when they're fresh, but you can't keep them on the court for more than five minutes at a time people would look at that person and be like, okay, well, they, they need to do conditioning. Like, the, the weight training is fine. They're already strong enough. They need to get in better shape. So, you know, the, I think people get that intuitively. But that same principle applies to resistance training research, where even though at this point we do have a lot of research suggesting that when, you're, when you equate on a per-set basis, take sets either to failure or pretty close to failure, on average, moderate rep and high rep sets result in the same hypertrophy. That doesn't necessarily apply to all individuals. And uh, 
I think that, that that applies in terms of both content creators and content consumers. So uh, for, for content creators, if you look at research and two things look to be the same on average, it's kind of easy to put the message out there like, oh, these two things are the same. There's no difference. Like everyone in my audience, either one totally valid option for you. It doesn't matter what you do. Um, and I think for for individual consumers as well, there's also kind of uh, uh, an urge to interpret things that way. So even if uh, uh, someone putting out content isn't being that explicit about it, like, oh, there's there's absolutely no difference between these things. You know, averages, individuals, they're the exact same thing. You kind of want to interpret things that way. So I, I see this uh, play out. Um, for example, like in discussions about failure versus non-failure training, where, you know, uh, you can look at the research, it seems like, eh, on average, there's not much of a difference, uh, as long as the non-failure training isn't just super, super easy. Um, but then, you know, folks will get all up in arms and be like, hey, I used to train to failure all the time. I, I had bad gains. Now I'm doing more like sub-maximal training. My gains are a lot better. You know, fuck the science. It's all wrong. Yeah. So basically you ask me a question. I give a fairly standard consensus answer and you purport to dunk on it. Um, but I know you and I assume that you have some evidentiary basis for this and potentially even a specific study that you'd like to discuss. I do in fact have one. So, um, you know, th this isn't the only study that that illustrates the point I'm trying to make, but it's a study that was published earlier this year, so pretty recent, that does illustrate this point quite well. That just because two things work similarly well on average, that doesn't necessarily mean they'll work similarly well for all individuals. Uh, so the study I'm going to talk about is by Carniero and colleagues. The title is Different Load Intensity Transition Schemes to avoid plateau and no response and lean body mass gain in postmenopausal women. So that's that's a bit of a mouthful and we're actually not going to talk much about the actual topic of the study. Who knows? Might do that next episode. Uh cuz I I think that there's a lot of confusion about high versus low responders, non-responders as well. Um so that that might be a good uh segment for the future. But right now we're talking about just inter-individual responses to, uh, on average, similarly efficacious training interventions. So in this study, uh, 24 healthy postmenopausal women uh, trained for 24 weeks, completed a 24-week intervention. Uh, so they were randomly assigned to groups, and one of the groups completed 12 weeks of low-load training, followed by 12 weeks of moderate-load training, so crossover design, uh, and then the other group completed 12 weeks of uh, moderate load training followed by 12 weeks of low load training. So both groups completed the same 12-week block of moderate load training and the same 12-week block of low load training, just in different orders. Um, the training consisted of three sets of leg press, knee extensions, leg curls, and calf raises to failure or close to failure three times per week. Uh, the moderate load group did sets of 8 to 12 reps for all of those exercises every training session, or the, the moderate load condition. The low load condition involved doing sets of one of the more random rep ranges I've heard of in the literature, sets of 27 to 31 reps, 
Oh, I, uh, I disagree. I, I always ask my clients, have you, have you been doing your 27s like I told you? Uh, I don't think that's common, but yeah. more power to you. Uh, and there was a, a progression mechanism in this study, as you would like to see. So if a subject completed more than 12 reps or more than 31 reps during their first set, training loads would be bumped up for their next training session. Uh, and this study assessed uh, lean soft tissue mass of the legs via DEXA pre-training, mid-training, so at the point where people were transitioning between uh, loading schemes and post-training. And the group averages were perfectly in line with the rest of the research. So uh, and if you're watching on YouTube, we'll, we'll flash the graphic up on the screen here. But gains in lean soft tissue mass of the legs, which was the proxy for hypertrophy in this study, uh, were virtually identical with low load and moderate load training on average uh, for both groups. So, you know, not just between groups, but also within groups, they seem to be on average very, very similar uh, training stimuli to on average promote gains in muscle, muscle mass of the legs. Uh, however, since this was a crossover study, that means we can also see how well individuals responded to both low load and moderate load training. And again, if you're watching on YouTube, we'll, we'll flash the graphic up here. Um, so on average, uh, subjects gained about 3.5-4% uh, lean soft tissue mass of the legs during both of the 12-week training blocks. But the, the individual responses were, were all over the place. So uh, kind of on the most extreme end, there was one person who had a 5% decrease in lean soft tissue mass of the legs following moderate load training, which is not good. That's not what you want to see. And an increase in excess of 10% following low load training. So that person did tremendously better with low load training than moderate load training, uh, and then just for another example, um, someone had like a 13% increase in lean soft tissue mass of the legs following moderate load training and like a 3% increase following low load training. So they did tremendously better with moderate load training. Um, so, you know, those are the sorts of within individual differences that can be lurking beneath the surface uh, following two training interventions that on average are similarly effective. Um, so also if you're watching on YouTube, we'll throw up another visual here that, uh, expresses the same information in a slightly different way. So, um, it's a scatter plot showing the relationship of how much muscle someone gained during their first 12 weeks of training versus how much muscle they gained during their second week, second 12 weeks of training with the different training protocol. And so if, the two training protocols were equally effective for all individuals. What you would expect to see is just a set of points that fell along the line that could be expressed as X equals Y. So just a, a straight diagonal line passing through the origin going up and to the right with the points being pretty clustered around that line and a strong positive association between how well you did with one training protocol and how well you did with the other training protocol. Uh, what we see is that there's basically no correlation, and if a correlation exists, it's a weak negative correlation, where, uh, you know, essentially how well you do on one, how, how well you did with moderate load training didn't predict how well you do with low load training and vice versa, 
And if anything, and I, I wouldn't read into this virtually any at all, but if anything, doing really well with moderate load training was slightly negatively predictive of doing well with low load training. Um, the beautiful thing about being the video editor is I can cut that so that it looks like it's the main point of the entire talk when I when I do the reel. When you say don't look, don't read into this too much, I'm just going <laughs> to clip right after that, just so you know. Oh, God. Okay, that's fine. Whatever. Uh, that's that's the life I've signed up for, I guess. Um, so yeah, like those those were the results. So similarly effective on average, massively differing responses within individual. And um, when when I was on uh, Dave Tate's table talk uh, a couple months ago, this was a point I brought up where I think that there is maybe too much emphasis on trying to figure out what on average works well and not quite as much emphasis on what works well for individuals and how to predict what will work well for individuals. Like I, I think uh, like study design should kind of move in that direction. And really there, there are two types of study designs where you can get at information like this, like not just what works best on average, but like what, what is the sort of intra individual variability in terms of responses to different training protocols. And for that, you either need crossover studies like this one or you need within-subject unilateral designs. And I am seeing more within-subject unilateral designs. Crossover studies are, are still relatively rare, and for good reason. Um, you know, this study, if it was just a parallel groups design, it would be 12 weeks in and out per subject. As it was, it was 24 weeks in and out per subject, um, which, you know, if you're trying to run a typical study with college kids makes it very difficult to do that study because most of the time people aren't on campus for six months straight. They're generally going home for Christmas and summer. Uh, but anyway, uh, very good study design for looking in to this type of question. Um, so I think that the, that the main takeaway here is this is an important principle that, that you should keep in mind if you're a content producer when you're producing content and when you're a content consumer, you should keep this in mind when you're consuming content. So uh, if you're someone who's producing content, you you need to be pretty careful about generalizing your N equals one experience to other people. So, you know, in this case, uh, one of these people, like let's say it's a postmenopausal woman with a YouTube fitness channel uh, and she does moderate load training. She does her sets of 8 to 12. She has a 5% reduction in lean soft tissue mass of the legs and says, hey, look, the fitness industry's fucking stupid. They're saying do your sets of 10 for hypertrophy. That's going to make you lose muscle. But if you do sets of 27 to 31, dude, you're talking about an increase in lean soft tissue mass of 10% over three months. Like, that's that's the good shit. Um and so, you know, that's a very common issue, I think, where, like, even in kind of the, the evidence-based community, like, you'll you'll see where someone tries something, they get good results with it, and then instead of, instead of just saying, like, hey, I tried this thing, here's my anecdote, maybe give it a shot, they say, well, I observed this thing, and it had to have happened for a reason, so let's go into the literature and just try to find maybe some mechanisms that could potentially explain it to therefore make my anecdote seem super generalizable and scientific. Um, so that's, that's one thing to be aware of. 
Uh, and also just kind of the key point here is if you are starting with kind of like a literature first approach where you are, are going into the research, looking to see what it says, if you're looking at two training interventions that don't seem to have differing effects on average, that doesn't mean that those two training interventions won't have different effects for a lot of individuals. Um, and the the differences within within individual could potentially be quite large. Um, and if you're a consumer of information, I think it's important to, like, when you read no difference, uh, like, two things on average seem to be similarly effective. I, I think that a lot of people have a kind of positivity bias where they're looking for things that work better than other stuff. So when they, like, when two things are tested head-to-head -head and they seem to be similarly effective, I think... A lot of people subtly interpret that as neither of these things worked because neither of them worked better. But really, most of the time, it just means either can work and it's probably worth experimenting with. Um, because once again, like those two things could, uh, like one of them could be much better for you or much worse. Um, and I also think it's important when you're consuming information to not immediately assume that a scientific finding or a piece of content something creates is wrong because it conflicts with your personal experience. So if you were one of the subjects in this study who, you know, uh, had a had a 9% larger increase in lean soft tissue mass of the legs following moderate load training, you know, if, if you've done that already, that's your experience. And then research on moderate load versus low load training starts coming out. And all of the science is saying, hey, it doesn't seem like there's much of a difference between these two things on average. You can look at your experience and be like, no, that's fucking bullshit. Like, I've done both of these things. One of them clearly works much better. Well, it works much better for you. Like, that, like just because a finding which is looking at mean differences conflicts with your personal experience, that doesn't mean that the finding is wrong. That could just mean that you had an atypical response. Um, like that's, that's very common. And I think that people, uh, underestimate how, how often that occurs. And I kind of think that the, the whole notion of conflating average responses with individual responses, I think that there's a bit of a, like an ideological current underpinning it where like, this is probably a very outdated reference now. Like, I, I don't think I don't think this film has as much cultural resonance with the kids anymore, but for people our age and slightly older, the film Fight Club and Tyler Durden's speech, You Are Not a Special Snowflake, like, I think that that either was ideologically clarifying for a lot of people or, uh, like, you know, taking something they already believed or suspected and kind of, like, putting a catchphrase to it, or it was, like, influential for people who like didn't have uh, like under underlying assumptions about the similarities or differences between people already where, you know, that like that idea kind of sticks in your head of like, no, like you're not a special snowflake. I'm not a special snowflake. You know, people uh, share like 99.9% .9 of their genes. There's, there's no way that you're that different from anyone else. So if we find something that is generally effective from a training perspective, nutrition perspective, whatever. Um, 
If it works pretty well for most people, it's gotta work for you too. And if it's not, it's just because you're fucking lazy and not trying hard enough. Um, like, I, I think that that's, like, it, it's, more, it's more wrong than right, but I think that that's just kind of like a tacit underlying assumption and heuristic that a pretty large group of people just go through the world with. Um, and yeah, like there, there are a lot of instances where things that work well for you may not work that well for other people and vice versa. Like things that don't seem to be generally efficacious or not more efficacious than some alternative on average could be really, really good for you. Um, and, and I think that it, that's always worth keeping in mind. Like when we're dealing with scientific research that is examining mean differences, group averages, um, you know, your personal experiences will probably comport with the average experience a pretty good chunk of the time. But you shouldn't expect it to comport with average responses all of the time, or maybe even most of the time. Um, so that's just, uh, yeah, that's that's really the point I'm trying to make. And, and I thought that this study was uh, a, a pretty good just kind of like case study to, to illustrate this point. So, Eric, are there any weird little things that may not be just generally great advice uh, from a training or nutrition perspective that you found to work really well for you personally? Yeah, I mean, the one thing that comes to mind for me is uh, starting out, when, mm-hmm. when I first got into lifting, I became very fond of the what what would be called the bro split, mm-hmm. uh, low frequency per muscle group, but very high volume per session mm-hmm. for each muscle group. So you, you go in and just beat the shit out of your pecs for like 90 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. And you won't touch them again for seven days. Yeah. And, you know, then I got into the whole science thing and I start looking at the research and saying, okay, well, but but what is what ought to be the optimal way to do it, right? And you start mm-hmm. putting together these heuristics and these guidelines of frequency, okay, at least two or three times a week and volume per session. We want to look at some of these thresholds at which, at which point something kind of gets more into like junk volume versus like really high quality volume and stuff like that. And you know, all throughout the years, I've experimented with different approaches. And I, I wouldn't say that, you know, the the kind of more evidence-based approach works poorly for me. Mm-hmm. But I will say I made progress on low frequency training programs that had very high volume per session. Mm-hmm. I, I made really great gains on bro splits that just don't seem compatible with kind of best practice guidelines or even some of the literature uh, suggesting that they are less favorable. Mm-hmm. Th- that would be the one thing that, that comes to mind for me. What, what about you? So for, for me, uh, my, my one weird trick that helped my squats more than almost anything else was breathing pause squats. And so if, if, you're, if you're an old school Greg head, uh, you probably know about these. I don't think I've talked about them publicly since maybe like 2015, 2016 or so. Um, but yeah, like, so my my squats are, are at this point and have been for a long time my best lift. And getting really good at squats uh, was kind of a two-step process where I, I did two things that may not be generally advisable. First, I did kind of like Bulgarian-style training, like daily maxes, 
squatting multiple times per day, working up to a max, doing back off volume, just way more than should theoretically be ideal. Worked really well for me. And then when that stopped working as well, I just, like, I don't even remember how I came up with this, but I still never felt, like, really comfortable at the bottom of a squat, and I felt like I couldn't brace well. So I came up with breathing pause squats, which, like, I'm sure someone else did previously, but I just hadn't come across anecdotes of it before, where essentially I'd get a pretty light load, go down, and just, like, pause for a long time. And by a long time, I'm not talking, like, a five count. I'm talking, like, a minute or two. So, you know, I'd be doing full, deep inhales, exhales, but, like, still bracing, but not trying to be, like, over, like exclusively reliant on intra-abdominal pressure to brace and like kind of hold myself there um and boy like that that was probably second only to the bulgarian style stuff the most effective thing i ever did for my squat um and i i fell into the trap of assuming that since they were so effective for me they had to they had to be good for other people too um and so I, I kind of put that out into the world and like this, this isn't scientific. Like I haven't, you know, uh, recruited 200 people and told all of them to do it and collected all of their responses. But just in terms of kind of anecdotes I've heard back from people who, who gave breathing pulse squats a shot, it seems that for probably about 80% of people, like they don't do anything. Um, like they're, they're not bad. They're just not uh, any more productive than any other squat auxiliary lift you could do. But for like 10, 20% of people, they are like borderline magical where, you know, over the span of three, four months, they put like 70 pounds on someone's squat. Uh, so, you know, that's like, I think a good example of, a an approach to training or in this case, like an exercise that, Really, for the for the vast majority of people, it's not generally efficacious. But if if it turns out to be the thing that you need, it, it like nothing else seems to scratch the same itch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do think that you know there, this is an important overall point uh, to kind of keep an eye out for these individual level differences. I mean, like I said, I've had great responses personally to programs that don't seem to be optimal. Uh, based on, you know, the the meta-analytic research. So I, I still, if I'm working with a brand new client, I have no idea about their training history or, or they don't really feel confident in saying they respond better to this or that. You start with what seems to work best for most people mm -hmm. and then you individualize from there, you yep. know. And I, I am excited about, you know, there are all these areas of the research where we say, uh, well, we need more research here, but who knows when we're going to get it, right? Yeah. I actually very firmly believe that we will get a lot more clarity about inter-individual differences within the next five to 10 years in specifically exercise and sport nutrition. I, I think we are on the cusp. I know specific individuals who are working toward like, how do we really effectively quantify this and model it and make better inferences about it? Yeah. And that ball has been rolling very slowly. And people have, in some cases, jumped the gun and said like, oh, I've got the perfect way to do this. And then you look back and you say, I think you're, you're modeling measurement error, not individual responses, right? Yeah. But I do believe 
five or 10 years from now, we're, we're going to be able to get much a much better grasp on how, you know, to what extent different individuals truly differ with these different outcomes uh, beyond just, hey, sometimes equipment has measurement error, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that it's, I think that it'll, it'll be a two-step process where one, we need to be able to quantify the between and within individual differences, but then two, kind of where where all of this hopefully is going is trying to find useful predictors Mm -hmm. so you know like it it's all well and good to say as we can right now ah yeah moderate and low load training on average seem to produce similar responses you can look at individual data and it seems some people do considerably better with one or the other the next step is then to say okay but can we predict which one you'll do best with right um and yeah like i I hope that's where things are going. I agree. All right. Ready to move on? Yeah, let's do it. So, Greg, when you think about raw egg consumption, what comes to mind? Man, so two things come to mind. Uh, The first thing that comes to mind, obviously, is Rocky One. Um, Second thing that comes to mind is when I started getting into lifting, my parents initially were just like very just completely against the use of protein powder or supplements in any form. So kind of, kind of V one of this before the raw eggs come in is instead of letting me drink protein shakes, just like buy some powder, mix it up, whatever. Um, they would only let me, well, not let me buy, they they would buy these for me. I think to, to make sure I wasn't like buying protein behind their back, but they would buy me insure drinks. Yeah. Like the, the stuff for, for like people who can't chew or digest food well um man those are fucking rough they have the they have the consistency of sweetened condensed milk like they're unbelievably viscous and they also don't have that much protein i think it was like 15 uh grams per can or something like that uh they're like a protein supplement for someone with no athletic related uh goals right Right, it's just like getting enough protein to be a healthy adult correct yeah uh and so yeah like trying to chug two of those after a workout was just miserable yeah um so eventually they relented a little bit and said okay like you like you can get a basic protein supplement but initially they limited me i think to just one scoop a day and they certainly wouldn't let me touch mass gainers um but you know i was at this point, just getting into powerlifting, I think I was like maybe 160, 170. Um, and I, I've mentioned this on the podcast before. Like my my first training crew were uh, all guys who were very strong, uh, untested, multiplied, multiply lifters who had some, in hindsight, unhelpful ideas about how much people should weigh at particular heights. So, you know, for them, it's like, oh, you're you're like 5'10", you need to at least be a 242, probably a 275. That probably wasn't a great idea to get lodged in my brain that young, but it did. Uh, and so I was like, dude, like I, I need to gain weight and I'm training all the time, still playing sports, very active. Um, so if, if you can believe it, at one point in my life, I did actually have some struggle with putting on weight just because my activity level was so high. Um, And since I couldn't use mass gainers, I had to come up with my own 
that in hindsight was was far worse and just like more inherently dangerous than just buying a mass gainer would be um but every morning i would mix myself up a mass gainer shake where most of the protein just had to come from raw eggs because like i couldn't use that much protein powder so it would be whole milk ice cream peanut butter uh like a scoop or two of protein powder and then like a dozen raw eggs and I just throw it in the blender, oh mix God. it up. A dozen? Maybe it was like eight. It was at least six. It oh was a it was a good number of raw eggs, which I'll note, like, so eggs kind of like have a weird smell and taste, mostly from like the, the sulfurous compounds in yeah. the yolk. But those don't go volatile and really like affect the the smell or taste that much until they're cooked. So Drinking raw eggs is not as unpleasant as one would assume, especially if you got some some ice cream and peanut butter in the mix. But anyway, I'd, I'd, make, I'd mix that shake up, pour it into a half-gallon bottle, and just drink on it from the morning until about 4 p.m. Oh that day. Oh, my God, that's disgusting. <laughs> um, which, again, like, that... So, in terms of food safety, very bad idea. In terms of, like, the bacteria I was ingesting, probably very gross. On a on a purely hedonic, just like gustatory basis, it was fine. Like it tasted okay, and the taste didn't get meaningfully worse throughout the day. Uh, but anyway, in hindsight, it is very funny that they were totally fine with me consuming like a dozen room temperature raw eggs every day, uh, but wouldn't let me use a mass gainer. Um, but anyway, so that's that's the first thing that comes to mind when I think raw eggs. Just I I used to consume a lot of them. Yeah. In, a ve- in a very dangerous way. Yeah, and you you mentioned uh the Rocky Balboa movie franchise and you know they- that's why they were fine with me drinking the raw eggs. Like my my father loves the Rocky movie franchise and he's yeah. like look man, like sliced alone wouldn't lead people astray. <laughs> if if he's willing to put himself on the silver screen drinking raw eggs, they've got to be safe for my boy. Yeah, like I, I think that was kind of the thought process. Well, not just safe, but also effective and hardcore. Correct. Right. So like when, when someone says like, hey, you know, I'm taking my lifting really seriously. I'm going to have an omelet for breakfast. You just mm-hmm. say, well, an omelet is just a lovely breakfast. That's not very hardcore. Yeah. But if you say I'm going to crack four eggs into a glass with nothing else and chug it, people are like, oh, shit, you really want to get big. Yeah. You know, and a lot of that comes from the kind of implied connotations from how raw eggs were featured within the Rocky franchise. And I think specifically Rocky one. So with that in mind, do you suspect raw egg consumption to be better or worse or equivalent when it, when compared to cooked eggs, specifically in terms of like muscle protein synthesis and building muscle? Yeah, so so now now that I'm a little older and know no more things, um, I would assume that raw eggs are probably worse than cooked eggs, um, just because like most most I think proteins in general, certainly animal proteins, as far as I'm aware, have higher oral bioavailability after cooking, just because like the cooking process kind of unravels some of those proteins, makes them a little bit easier to digest. Um, and I, I believe that's particularly true of egg protein. So I, I would anticipate that cooked is is better than raw. So I am going to, in this segment, cover a new study that actually 
directly compared raw versus cooked egg consumption, specifically looking at acute muscle protein synthesis after a resistance training stimulus. So very straightforward study. But before we get into that, I want to take a little detour and talk about protein quality. It's something I've talked about previously on the show, but not since we had all these additional capabilities with adding visuals and graphics and things like that. So I wanted to give a nice little concise overview of protein quality, why it matters, and then uh, circle back and talk about that study. So first of all, uh, protein quality is, you know, there are several different scales that are typically used to quantify it. And academics like to argue over which scales were best. And of course, it changes over time as people win arguments and create new scales and then have more arguments and win those arguments. So if you look back at older research, you'll you'll see, and, and current research, depending on the application, people talking about protein efficiency ratio, uh, biological value, net protein utilization, protein digestibility corrected amino acid score. I mean, there's a long list of these different metrics that people use to basically say, not just which protein's better than another, but give me a number so that I can really start ranking, you know, large lists of different proteins. And the general idea behind protein quality is like, to what extent can a human being consume this and really efficiently and effectively utilize the proteins within the food for building new human proteins? Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about fitness stuff, we're, we're almost always talking about building new muscle proteins, right? That, that's really what people are, are interested in. Yeah. So you might be wondering why this matters. Uh, you know, an egg is an egg. So you'd be thinking, well, these both have the same protein quality. Uh, but actually, as you alluded to, raw versus cooked eggs, you know, they have the same amino acid uh, breakdown or profile. That's one huge component that goes into protein quality is what amino acids are in this and in what relative magnitudes. Mm -hmm. But it's not just the amino acid profile. It's also the digestibility. And like you mentioned, many proteins, their digestibility is influenced by the way that they're processed or cooked. Uh, and eggs are no exception. There was a study by Evenepoel and colleagues back in 1998. And I'm going to put a little table on the screen here. But uh, what we're looking at is the true ileal digestibility. Uh, and what, what's really fascinating is you might think, okay, cooking a protein, maybe it takes it from like 85% digestibility up to like 92, right? In the case of, of this study, they found that that percentage of true ileal digestibility went up from 51% to 91% Whoa. by cooking it. So we're talking about a very considerable difference in uh, this particular metric of protein digestibility. So with this in mind, uh, someone might very justifiably assume a cooked egg, same amino acid profile, but way better digestibility. Surely this is going to promote muscle protein synthesis to a greater extent than raw eggs. Mm -hmm. And then again, very justifiably, they would say, well, if it builds muscle better over five hours, you know, literally building new muscle protein, surely that means it's going to build more muscle over five weeks or five years, mm -hmm. right? So we, we have this tendency to say, well, if it's better for muscle protein synthesis in the short term, surely it's better for hypertrophy in the long term. So that brings me to this new study, head-to-head -head, raw versus cooked eggs. And this was by, do you know how to pronounce that last name? I don't. F-U-C-H-S. I have no idea. Um, 
it's probably a German last name if I had to guess the origin. Yeah, I I don't know. I'm I'm googling it real quick. Yeah. So anyway, uh, this study, which actually referenced Rocky Balboa in the title, um, all right. Are 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 you ready? I've got it. I've got it pulled up on YouTube. Okay. I'm gonna crank the volume. Fuchs. 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 All right. Fuchs. There we go. Hopefully we don't get like a copyright claim for for throwing that audio in. I, I apologize, Voxifier.com. Uh, we we didn't mean to steal your intellectual property. Uh, so Fuchs. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And it always makes sense in hindsight when you look up how to pronounce something. But you're like, yeah, that was one of the 35 ways I would have tried. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, Fuchs and colleagues, uh, like like I was mentioning, they, they specifically re- mentioned uh, Rocky Balboa in the title, which I thought was kind of clever. Um, but very straightforward study. After a resistance training session, you know, they, they were they gave these protein uh, uh, treatments. Right. So one group of people got uh, cooked egg. The mm-hmm. other group got raw egg. And then a third group was like a control group. And if memory serves, I think they got a lovely croissant with butter and a little bit of orange juice. Nice. Uh, so it was it was a much lower amount of protein. It was like five grams of protein. The other treatments, uh, going b- based on memory, I-, I think they ended up getting like, I think it was five eggs each. And so that puts you in like the 20 to 30-ish range for for protein. Yeah. But yeah, it was a pretty standard protein dose for someone who's trying to get a really nice, robust protein synthesis response. Um, so what they were looking at here is looking at uh, plasma amino acid responses. So just after ingestion, how did key amino acid levels change over the course of the next few hours. So when we talk about key amino acids, uh, there's a few we want to mention. So leucine is a very special amino acid in the sense that it plays a role in actually stimulating the response of muscle protein synthesis. It plays more of like a signaling role of telling the muscle, hey, plenty of leucine here. Let's go ahead and start building muscle, Mm -hmm. right? And so the leucine is really important for triggering that response and then the essential amino acids are critical because we need all of them to be there and present in sufficient amounts so that we can build new muscle proteins. Mm-hmm. So when you look at these amino acid responses, it's very common to say, okay, what does the leucine look like? Are we getting a big increase, a really rapid peak, uh, and a sustained high level of leucine? And then same thing goes with, with essential amino acids. Are we getting a really nice, robust response with a, a really big increase in blood levels? Now, I'm going to show on the screen here, uh, the amino acid responses were very in line with what you would expect, right? So looking at blood levels of leucine, uh, there was not a large increase uh, at all looking at the control group, with had, which had that really low protein uh, meal. The, uh, the raw egg group did have a, a noticeable increase. It looks like plasma leucine went down in the control group, if I'm, if I'm looking at the right figure yeah i i should have put the actual time amount on the uh the x-axis there i i think that just has to do with the preceding resistance training stimulus and how oh, that gotcha, gotcha that impacts those acute dynamics um but uh but yeah the raw egg there was a noticeable increase a significant increase statistically speaking but the uh the cooked uh egg had a significantly greater increase in blood leucine than the raw egg. So mm-hmm. that would go in line with the the assumption, right? You cook it, 
the digestibility goes up, we have a better, more robust leucine response compared to raw eggs. Now, if we look at total essential amino acids in the blood, it was the same exact pattern. So the control group, it actually dropped off a little bit and there was a little reduction. The raw egg did have an increase, but the uh, cooked eggs had an even greater increase. So based on the blood amino acid levels, you would say this is going exactly as how I would expect, and surely we're going to have a better protein synthesis response in the cooked egg group because of that better amino acid response in the blood. Yeah, so so far this is exactly what I predicted, so let's let's just wrap this segment up and... Yeah, that would be nice. Uh, unfortunately... Fuck there's a complicating factor here. Oh, so no. Oh, no. You're going to see on the screen here, we're looking now at muscle protein synthesis rates. And what they did was they looked at kind of baseline, and then they looked at the first two hours after ingestion, and then from hours two to five. And in the first two hours, all three groups ha had a significant increase. Um, but then when you look at uh, hours two to five, you start to see... Uh, a bit of, of a divergence there, right? So when you look at hours two to five, you see that clearly, uh, you know, statistical comparisons aside, we see a, a more robust increase in muscle protein synthesis when we're looking at the raw and the boiled eggs mm -hmm. compared to the control group. But when we, when we start to compare the raw and the boiled eggs, they look extremely similar. I, I mean, they are virtually identical when you're yeah. looking at protein synthesis rates whether you're looking at baseline zero to two hours or two to five hours uh, and then once again they, they also included a figure there where they were looking at uh, just overall that whole zero to five hour time period after ingestion uh, again baseline all groups are pretty similar looking at that entire five hour period uh, all groups did have an increase in protein synthesis rates um, and, but when you look at the actual magnitude of the increase, once again, the raw eggs and the boiled eggs were, were very, very similar. And in fact, looking at that zero to five hour, when it's all collapsed together, the raw egg bar is slightly higher, not meaningful whatsoever from a physiological perspective, but whatever advantage we would expect from the boiled eggs having a better, you know, uh, immediate response in terms of amino acid levels it simply did not translate to muscle protein synthesis. So there was a favorable effect if you just look at the, the blood amino acid kinetics and responses. But for muscle protein synthesis, there was really no influence of cooking when compared to the raw eggs. Mm -hmm. So this comes to a broader point about protein. There is a chain of assumptions that a lot of people make, and the assumptions build on each other. Right, And so the chain goes like this. We, we look at these individual protein sources one by one. You'll, you'll often see people saying, should I have whey or casein or milk or egg or chicken or beef, whatever. A lot of times we'll look at these things in a vacuum and say, well, first I'm going to look at quality, which is based on amino acid composition and digestibility. And I'm going to assume that better quality or higher quality score leads to a better amino acid response in the blood mm -hmm. and that necessarily leads to a better muscle protein synthesis response acutely mm -hmm. and that necessarily leads to a better hypertrophy response over time it helps me build more muscle over time and a lot of times without explicitly stating it a lot of people do assume have a tendency to assume 
that those relationships are like perfectly correlated and also related in magnitude in, in a very direct way. So yeah. a lot of times people assume if I have a 5% better, uh, you know, protein quality score, I'm going to have a 5% better response in blood amino acid levels and a 5% better muscle protein synthesis response and a 5% better increase in muscle over time. Mm -hmm. And what's really important to, to recognize is if that kind of chain of assumptions held true, there would be things we would expect to see in the literature that, that we should be able to expect pretty reliably, you know? So we should expect that the studies looking at acute muscle protein synthesis responses with all these different acute feeding protocols of this protein versus that protein, they should give us a very clear, reliable, and predictable pattern of which protein sources lead to more protein synthesis. Mm -hmm. um, there should also be pretty clear relationships by which animal-based protein sources very obviously and routinely outperform plant-based protein sources, whether we're looking at protein synthesis or long-term changes in muscle over time. Yeah. Um, we should see as an extension of that, that vegan and vegetarian diets do very, very poorly in studies compared to omnivorous diets. When we look at these outcomes of protein synthesis and hypertrophy over time, and really even among omnivorous diets, if this chain of assumptions held true with the type of, uh, high correlation that, that some people expect, you know, we should even expect that people who eat a higher percentage of animal-based proteins on an omnivorous diet should have even better results than someone who says, you know, maybe I'm going to go kind of plant-based and only get like 20% of my protein from animal-based proteins, right? So yeah. even within an omnivorous diet, we should see that a general preference toward more higher quality animal-based protein should uh, win out in the long run. And one thing that's important, you know, I talked a little bit about animal versus plant-based protein sources. The reason that I group them and kind of categorize them as lower versus higher quality, that's not a hard rule. There are low quality animal-based proteins. Um, so like collagen, it, its amino acid profile, if you're trying to build muscle, is just rubbish. It, mm -hmm. It's terrible. And, and the studies bear that out. It is not a good muscle building supplement. When we look at uh, soy, that's a very high-quality plant-based protein. But overall, plant-based protein sources tend to have lower quality scores. What I'm going to show you is a, a series of figures from a study by Van Vliet and colleagues. And uh, what we see, it's a bunch of different protein sources, plant and animal-based and human. That's just uh, to give a representative example. That is not implying you should be eating human muscle. I would discourage that in the strongest terms possible. Yeah, I mean, because it, it has considerably less leucine than whey. So <laughs> exactly. So. There, th yet another reason to not eat humans. There's, like there's li literally multiple reasons. Yeah, like there, at least two. Yeah. So, uh, but when you look at these plant-based proteins, generally speaking, they have lower leucine per gram of protein. Generally speaking, they also have lower essential amino acid levels uh, per you know per gram of protein. Although I, I do think it's worth pointing out that there is considerable variability among animal-based protein sources, right? So I, I find it a, a little bit ironic that people say like, oh, I don't eat plant-based proteins or I don't rely on them because they're such low quality. But you never see those people splitting hairs between like whey and egg or, or you know, whey and beef, right? They mm -hmm. just consider it all to be high-quality protein. 
But there is still considerable vari- variation there. Y- you know, I see on these lists that for leucine content and amino acid content, cod is particularly low down low down on the list as far as animal proteins go, which might make you feel a little bit silly about trying to replace me with Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Is, is he a big he's cod a, guy? If memory serves, he's a, he's a huge cod head. Wow. Which that might make you question some of his choices. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to think about that. I'm still waiting for him to get back to me, which is strange because I sent that email three years ago, but we'll see. Uh now, I'm also going to show a figure here of lysine and methionine. And the reason that this is important is because a, a lot of what we would call a low what we would call low quality proteins, one of the main factors kind of uh, dictating, you know, if we're going to just split into a dichotomy, high versus low quality. Like we can give them a graded score and all that stuff. But one of the issues with a low quality protein is generally speaking, you know, per the definition, it's going to be lacking at least one essential amino acid. Uh, So, you know, of all the essential amino acids, there's going to be at least one where it's really falling short in a way that inhibits its ability to support muscle building to a maximal extent. And the, the two most common ones that we have to keep an eye out for are lysine and methionine. And we're going to come back to that a little bit when I talk about practical applications of plant-based proteins. Um, but but we can definitely see that for a lot of uh, plant-based proteins, you know, they fall a little bit short with either lysine or methionine, whereas animal-based proteins tend to have plenty of both. So, so that's a, a key distinction between them. But when we look at digestibility, when we look at essential amino acids, leucine in aggregate, uh, animal-based proteins tend to have better looking metrics than plant-based proteins. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like I said, with that kind of chain of assumptions, you would assume, well, surely plant-based proteins are going to fall way short when we look at the literature for protein synthesis and hypertrophy, but that's really not the case. Um, so there are a couple meta-analyses in the last couple of years, one by Morgan and colleagues, one by Lim and colleagues, and generally speaking, they found that, you know, that one of them was looking at specifically plant versus animal based. The other was looking at high versus lower quality proteins. So like, for example, I think there were some studies in there that used collagen as the low quality protein, even though it's animal based. Yeah. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, when you look at a, uh, acute muscle protein synthesis, the data generally lean in favor of be- of looking better for these higher quality protein sources and these animal-based protein sources. Uh, but there is a, there, there's some mixed evidence there. Um, I, I covered it in a mass article uh, a year or two back where there's actually a surprising amount of contradictions in some of those head-to-head comparisons. Um, but nonetheless, overall, broadly speaking, generally the research indicates that muscle protein synthesis acutely is better for these higher quality proteins, especially when there's no resistance training involved. And mm-hmm. that's important because resistance training itself provides a very robust stimulus for muscle protein synthesis, leucine and amino acids aside. Yeah, I mean, e- even going back to the to the study that, uh, like the, the main one about eggs that we're talking about here, I mean, it looks like just the resistance training stimulus itself increased muscle protein synthesis like threefold over baseline mm-hmm. and resistance training plus 
either version of egg consumption maybe increased muscle protein synthesis fourfold over baseline. Yeah. So like the the impact of training itself was considerably larger than protein. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Training and having a lovely croissant with some butter and orange juice, those people were in a good spot in, in terms of protein synthesis there. You yeah. know, the, the the extra protein from egg just elevated it a little bit beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, so generally speaking, you know, like I said, better acute muscle protein synthesis findings for these higher quality proteins. But when you introduce a resistance training stimulus, uh, that starts to muddy the waters a little bit. And then when you make the leap and you stop looking at protein synthesis and you instead look at things like hypertrophy or strength development over time, those differences really fade away. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to get into all the nuance and detail of why that's the case, but I am going to refer interested individuals to a paper by Wittard and colleagues called Making Sense of Muscle Protein Synthesis, a focus on muscle growth during resistance training. The entire uh, premise of that paper, or at least the, the way I read it, was to explore why in that chain of assumptions, things do break down along the way and why we cannot look at a protein and make a perfect assumption of how it's going to impact muscle protein synthesis. And even if we could, protein synthesis, uh, those acute studies really do not predict long-term hypertrophy nearly as well as we would hope that they do. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people will say you need to eat this protein source because it does way better in these acute studies on protein synthesis. And those findings, generally speaking, do not pan out particularly well for long-term hypertrophy within certain contexts. You know, that that reminds me a lot of like EMG research. Like you go back five, six years, there were a lot of like a, a lot of well-meaning and generally well-informed people um, who and, and like, you know, not throwing shade. I was one of them who would make like pretty strong recommendations about like, oh, you should do this exercise instead of this other this other exercise to grow this muscle group. Because look, like we see higher EMG responses with exercise A versus exercise B. Um, And, you know, like over time, we've learned more like, yeah, that's not really a validated assumption. And there are a lot of situations where that assumption, like higher EMG leads to more effective training stimulus, more muscle growth, where that assumption breaks down. Um, and, And now I think a lot of people are pretty wise to that, but I don't think that same level of I guess, I guess skepticism is an okay word for it has really reached uh protein synthesis or protein quality data quite yet yeah and, and to be fair i mean a lot of this research is really developing before our eyes you know a lot of the research i'm talking about here the meta-analyses the two studies i'm about to mention these are all from the last two years or so right so Two studies that really put this to the test, and I think were really eye-opening studies for a lot of folks who had a tendency to really micromanage the minutiae pertaining to their protein sources. One was by Montaigne and colleagues. And what they did was they looked at uh, a, two, two diets. One was vegan. The other was omnivorous. Both provided 1.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass per day which would be within what we consider kind of the optimal kind of general range. And what they looked at was muscle protein synthesis levels, not acutely after a single meal, but longer term, over three days, 
with resistance training included in that protocol. And what they found was if you're eating plenty of protein, and, and these diets were supplemented with a pretty decent amount of mycoprotein, which is a pretty high quality plant. Well, it's a, a fungi-based fungi protein. Uh, they used to say it was mushroom-based, but then they got hit. <laughs> they, they ran into some <laughs> litigation because people were like, this clearly is not a mushroom. And they're like, right, but no one wants to eat fungus. Um, but yeah, mycoprotein is a fungus-based uh, uh, protein source that uh, that fits within vegan diets and, and has a pretty solid uh, set of characteristics for protein quality. But uh, generally speaking, 1.8 grams per kilogram per day over this three-day period. Uh, both groups, whether it was vegan or omnivorous, had similar uh, protein muscle protein synthesis rates over those three days. So that gives us more information than looking at a single meal, but still, it's protein synthesis. It's not hypertrophy. But that was covered shortly thereafter in a study by Javier Lorraine and colleagues. They were looking at 1.6 grams per kilogram per day uh, in a diet that did have a significant amount of soy protein uh, rather than mycoprotein. Uh, soy, again, a, a really nice plant-based protein with some really uh, favorable characteristics. So I'm not indicating that protein quality is fully irrelevant, and that's an important thing. These diets had some mycoprotein, some soy, some other kind of conventional food products that have that have plant-based protein. So I'm, I'm not saying plant, uh, you know, protein quality is irrelevant. You know, just have collagen and you'll be fine. That that is, of course, an indefensible statement. What what my general argument is getting toward is. We want to just have a mixture of pretty okay proteins, and that mm -hmm. seems to be just as good as micromanaging and saying, well, what if I increase the protein score from 87 to 92, right? The yeah. effect of that is is zero, right? So I'll, I'll get to those practical applications as we go, but since I highlighted mycoprotein and soy as being pretty high-quality proteins, it is relevant to mention, uh, but but we'll we'll put all those pieces together in a moment, but... In this case, again, eating enough protein, 1.6, not a super high amount, right? So back in the day, a lot of folks would say, well, you can do fine on a vegan diet, but you have to eat a way, way, way more protein than an omnivore. Mm -hmm. This study directly contradicted that and found that over a, a very, you know, kind of standard resistance training study timeline, longitudinal study in conjunction with resistance training, whether you were on a vegan diet or an omnivorous diet, both groups had very similar improvements in strength and hypertrophy. So like I was saying, my, my main premise here is not that protein quality is irrelevant. That, that's an indefensible statement. But it's that we need to change the way we view that kind of chain of assumptions. And I think we need to work backwards. So the goal here is to support maximal or near maximal hypertrophy responses to training, right? And if we work back, it, it's not that we need to start with protein quality score and build up from there. But we need to work backwards and say, in order to get this great hypertrophy response, I need to find proteins that give me a good enough muscle protein synthesis response. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be the best one when we compare head to head. I need my muscle protein synthesis response to this protein to simply be good enough. Yeah. And how do I get there? I need to make sure that I have a blood amino acid response that isn't way better than all the other comparators. It just has to be good enough to get me there. Yeah. And how do I get that good blood amino acid response? I just need the, the amino acid composition and the digestibility of that protein source. Once again, 
to simply be good enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these little, min- you know, tiny, minute differences comparing one to the other, they don't seem to be that informative. What we need to do is make sure that at each channel, each step of this chain along the way, we need to have protein sources that are simply good enough to get the job done, which lends itself to the question, how good is good enough? Like, how, how do we go about sorting through different uh, protein sources within kind of a conventional diet uh, not looking into like hyper specialized protein sources or anything like that. And, you know, it's frankly extremely easy to find protein sources that are more than sufficient to support hypertrophy to, to essentially to a near maximal level. So, uh, what we're trying to do here is over the course of a full day, make sure you don't have any glaring shortcomings when it comes to essential amino acid coverage. So, like I said, some proteins are going to be short on lysine or methionine. You want to make sure you don't have any massive oversights there. You also want to make sure that you are selecting and preparing food sources in a manner that simply conforms to basic preparation guidelines. You want to cook things the way they're supposed to be cooked. But but generally speaking, if like when we're talking about these studies with like uh, the soy the soy study, the mycoprotein study, I didn't see anything in the methods. I, I could have missed it. I didn't see anything where they were saying, oh, by the way. We also were extremely meticulous about arranging the other protein sources in the diet. It was just like, hey, you're on a vegan diet. Let me guess. You're going to be eating wheat and rice and corn and beans and whatever, right? Like the other protein is just coming in from just eating foods that that find their way into kind of standard typical diets. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that leads me to a question, Greg. So, So the overall goal here, like I said, no massive shortcomings for essential amino acids uh, and just eating stuff in a preparation method that is advisable and making sure that you're not having any stomach discomfort due to poor digestibility. A lot of omnivores start to, you know, go in line with that original chain of assumptions and say, oh crap, I need to make sure that I have all of the highest quality protein source. A lot of people don't realize, like they'll make like protein oats and be like, well, I put in 24 grams of whey protein, so this meal had 24 grams of protein. Not the case. Oats have protein, and usually more than people think. Yeah. So usually omnivores who are into, into lifting will make that realization and say, oh my God, a, a considerable portion of my diet is crappy proteins. I mean, I've seen people even put forth the idea that like, you know, the, the 1.6 to 2.2 grams of protein uh, per kilogram per day or whatever that's uh that's specifically just for high quality animal protein yeah like like you should be aiming to get that much animal protein in per day not just total which that is is directly counter to the research well i was gonna say i I don't want to be an asshole but like that that range of numbers comes from a study yeah you can just look at the study and say is that what these numbers mean correct yeah and they don't yeah but anyway yeah back to being nice and charitable so <laughs> some people will say like, crap, I need to really tighten this up and stop counting all my lower quality plant-based proteins and only count my high quality ones from animal sources. So Greg, what percent of daily protein in an omnivorous diet comes from plants rather than animals, if you had to guess? Oh man. Uh, so this isn't my guess now, cause we've talked about this off mic before. But before we talked about it off mic, uh, just kind of like based on my assumptions about my own consumption habits before I started tracking, 
I would have guessed that about maybe three quarters of the protein in an omnivorous diet comes from animal sources. From so, animal sources. So a, yeah. about a quarter from plant sources. Yeah. So when I started digging into this research, my assumption was that the percentage coming from animal-based proteins was much higher than it actually is. Um, and, and I think a lot of that comes down to demographics that inform those assumptions. So uh, I'm going to put a table on the screen here that talks about the breakdown of animal versus plant-based proteins in a diet. Now, the world wa worldwide average for an omnivorous diet is 42% of protein from animal sources and 58% from plant sources. Uh, that's a much higher contribution from plant sources than I would have expected. Um, but then when you start to break down things based on uh, socioeconomic status um, and, and you break things down into regional uh, localizations, uh, you start to see that there are very clear patterns. So like, for example, in the Americas, um, we, have, we have a pretty you know, decently high percentage of our protein coming from animal-based sources, whereas when you look at uh, Africa and Asia, for example, there are lower percentages coming from animal-based protein sources. So part of that is uh, is regional. It also breaks down a little bit differently as you go from lower income to higher income uh, categorizations. But yeah, the, the, the take home there is that, in fact, a decent percentage of protein in an omnivorous diet across regions uh, does tend to come from plant-based proteins. And that's fine because when you look at even a small contribution from animal-based proteins, you are still getting plenty, more than enough of leucine and essential amino acids, lysine, methionine, the whole deal. So if you're on an omnivorous diet that isn't like 90% plant-based, uh, you really don't have to put a lot of effort into scoping out these meticulously curated lists of protein sources. But that brings me to a vegan diet. Um, and I, I've mentioned on the show, my diet is getting closer and closer to vegan as the years go on. It's strictly vegetarian, but kind of flexible with, uh, with dairy and egg. But uh, a lot of people say, well, I'm a vegan, so I can't really lean on that assurance that I have some animal-based protein uh, coming into the diet. So what do I do here, right? So sometimes vegans will, who are into lifting will think, man, this sucks. I'm going to have to look into like this huge list of like, nine essential amino acids for every single protein source and really carefully kind of fit this puzzle together. And fortunately, that's not the case. Practically speaking, um, when you look at uh, plant-based protein sources, we can categorize them in a very convenient and efficient way. So a lot of the common uh, plant-based protein sources we'll see in the diet uh, can be categorized based on the particular essential amino acid that they are coming up short on. So uh, I'm going to put a graphic on the screen that's from bodybuilding.com. Uh, I, I understand that, you know, food selection is regional. So th these categories aren't going to be perfectly representative of every region of the world. But this was looking at stuff that you might find in like, you know, these are all food sources I would expect to see in an American supermarket walking down the aisles. But there, there's a group of proteins that are missing threonine and lysine. And so we're talking about oats, rice, rice uh, pasta, rye, wheat, corn. There's a different group where you're missing methionine. So beans, lentils, peanuts, chickpeas, peas, and soybeans. There's also a category where you're, where you're specifically missing lysine. So that would be walnuts, cashews, sesame seeds, 
sunflower seeds, uh, pumpkin seeds, a bunch of seeds and nuts, basically. So what's really convenient about this is when you categorize protein sources, basically all you're trying to do to, 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 meet, the, um, to meet your needs for amino acids is just make sure that you're not picking all your proteins from one of these groups, mm-hmm. right? You want to have what they call complementary protein sources, which basically means uh, if, if all of your, so your protein sources that you're currently going to seem to be missing methionine, so if you're just like hanging out totally in group B, just try to work in some protein from group C, right? And so what you're trying to do is mix and match these groups a little bit, and it doesn't have to be perfectly done. It doesn't mean you have to have 50% 50 of your protein from group B and 50% from group C or something like that. What it means is you just want to have a mixture from multiple groups that are making up your daily protein intake. And as long as you're doing that and you're meeting basic general recommendations for protein intake, everything else seems to sort itself out just fine. So those general recommendations, which are important uh, based on the literature, you want to make sure that you're getting at least 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of total body weight per day. Or if you do a little bit of math, uh, that generally breaks down in most cases to aiming for at least two grams of protein per kilogram of fat-free mass per day. That's for if you're like approximately trying to maximize muscle growth, right? Yes. If, if you like are you, trying you to can maximize. can go lower than that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. This is for optimizing hypertrophy. This is not for supporting general health. Yeah. Yeah. Um, general health, basically you'd, you'd cut these in half, right? Yeah. Usually you'd go 0.8 grams per kilogram. Mm-hmm. Um, is that how it, how it goes? I think that's yeah. Our, yeah. Yeah. We, the fitness industry has so, uh, aggressively shit on the RDA for protein that I've, I've basically forgotten what it is. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's 0.8. Yeah, it, it is. It is. Um, but yeah, so those, those are the targets you want to shoot for. Again, if, if you're trying to maximize hypertrophy, you're lifting, uh, you also want to split that protein, ideally, if you can, into like three to six servings per day. How important that is, is subject to debate. A lot of what we know about those specific protein uh, distributions, a lot of it's based on, you know, acute studies that lack ecological validity. Some of it's based on studies that don't involve a resistance training component, which, like I said, uh, provides a not just a large, but also a long lasting stimulus for protein synthesis. but if you're interested in optimization, uh, it shouldn't be too terribly difficult to break your protein into somewhere between three to six servings per day. If you say, listen, I got to do it all in one meal, that's fine. Based on the literature, it doesn't seem to be optimal, but you, you can still go a very, very long way with that strategy in terms of hypertrophy. And then again, you just want to make sure that there are no glaring lacks of any particular essential amino acid. And all that requires is making sure that you're not literally getting all of your protein from a particular group, like we mentioned previously with those complementary protein categories. You just want to make sure you've got some pro- some proteins that have plenty of methionine, some that have plenty of lysine. Generally speaking, threonine is it's important, but you don't have to work as hard to, to make sure you've got it covered. Usually, you're going to have enough to get the job done. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I think that covers a huge percentage of questions and concerns related to protein intake. And again, uh, you know, the general uh, general take home point here is it's probably not 
uh, beneficial to get too bogged down in the details about micromanaging really, you know, small differences in specific protein sources. What you're trying to do is hit those general recommendations, have a nice mixture of proteins in your diet. You should be good to go. Two caveats I want to mention, like you alluded to, this entire segment was basically assuming that you lift weights and that you're interested in maximizing hypertrophy. So that that's an important caveat or kind of clarification to add on there. Um, this is not like a uh, segment about general health guidance. Uh, another caveat, there might be situations where an individual is restricted to a low protein diet for medical reasons. Um, not my place to say what those reasons should be. If you're working with a qualified healthcare professional and they need you on a low protein diet, they'll let you know, not me on YouTube. Um, but in that scenario, if you're like, okay, I'm, I am restricted to a lower protein diet, but I have an interest for, for a variety of reasons in getting as much strength and lean mass as I can. That is a specific scenario where I do think protein quality could become a more pertinent issue because what you're trying to do there is basically get more bang for your buck and focus on protein efficiency. You know, so what is the smallest total grams of protein I can ingest while getting maximal benefit for supporting hypertrophy uh, and strength gains. And most, almost certainly, if you've got a, a qualified healthcare professional telling you to restrict protein, you're going to be well below the intake that, that meets those general recommendations I gave for lifters. So in that case, that very specific kind of unique situation, I do believe it makes sense to then prioritize higher quality proteins. It doesn't mean a protein score of 94 is totally different than 91, but you will probably want to prioritize just so that you can try to get all your bases covered with leucine and essential amino acids without having to take in, you know, 1.6 grams per kilogram per day. Makes sense. Cool. So no more questions about protein. We never have to talk about it again. Uh, yeah, seems like it. Awesome. Seems like it. No, I, I do enjoy talking about protein and it, it is one of those, th there are some of these areas of the nutrition literature that are egregiously understudied. Protein, fortunately, not one of them. Th there's plenty of literature to dig into. And uh, yeah, I, everyone in nutrition loves talking about protein. We, we've talked about that off air. It's like everybody's favorite little topic, wh whatever their perspective happens to be. Mm -hmm. All right. So I think that does it for this episode, right? It does. Uh, as always. Thank you so much for joining us for the Stronger by Science podcast. Uh, we will be back soon with another episode. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.